This morning I'd like to begin the series in the book of Galatians. So let me invite you to turn there. Galatians chapter 1. One of the greatest struggles in the Christian mind is the idea that God needs us to do something in order for us to be accepted before Him. That is, God looks at us and He sees whether we're going to do right and wrong and that's going to determine whether He loves us or not. Our standing before Him. Let me try to illustrate with an example that I uh, am drawing from a book by Jerry Bridges. He says just uh, take, for example, two completely different days that you have as a Christian spiritually. The first day, you get up early, Spend quality time and quantity time with God in the Word and in prayer. And you are alert and awake as you do so. You, you see some things in the Scriptures that, that awaken your desire to serve Him more, and maybe in a fresh, new way. You head off to work, and you're in the middle lane of the expressway, and construction is forcing the right lane to merge into yours, and, and you're waiting for this all to happen and someone waits the last second and pulls up and wants to get in front of you. And because you're having such a good day and in such a wise spiritual state, you think in your mind, maybe they're late for a meeting or they have an emergency that they have to attend to. I would be happy to let them go in front of me in my lane. When you get to to work, one of your co-workers uh, tells about a death of a loved one and you use that as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. You come home and uh, you find nothing of value on television, and so you spend the rest of the evening reading a Christian biography and you go to bed. Okay, so that's the first day. The next day, you sleep through your alarm clock. You don't wake up until 20 minutes before it's time to go to work. No time for God this morning. You barely have time for your coffee and bagel. You head out the door. You get to the same place of construction that's forcing the lanes to merge and someone's ready to merge in front of you and you angrily yell at them, what is your problem? Why can't you get in line like everybody else, like a normal person? And you get to work and some co-workers are talking about some inappropriate jokes and instead of excusing yourself or saying something about it, you laugh along with them instead because you don't want to feel out of place. You get home, your house is a wreck, and so you take it out on your cat or your animal or your uh, children, children, animals. Uh, you go to bed angry, and um, and that's the end of the second day. Now, which day determines your standing before God? In other words, which day is God more eternally pleased with? And the temptation for us to answer is, uh, well, God's going to love me more on the first day as opposed to the second day. Now, it's clear that God is pleased more with the first day. But think about this for a second. What determines your eternal standing before God? Is it the first day or the second day? And that's a trick question, so be careful. The answer is neither day determines your standing before God. That is, if you are in Christ, God loves you just as much the first day when you did everything right as He does the second day when you didn't seem to do anything right. Your standing is not based on your performance. 
Okay, and the, the, the key word there is standing. Your standing. Your, uh, your eternal standing before God is not based on your performance. It's not based on whether we have a good day spiritually. It's not based on whether we're piling up works over time that God has to look at and accept us. If it were, then we'd all be condemned. Why? Because not one of us can do enough good works to earn salvation. Not one of us. We would have to be perfect. James 2.10 says that if you keep the whole law but offend in one point, if you sin just one time, then you're guilty of the whole law, breaking the whole law. So, so none of us can do enough good works to affect our standing before God. And so that gives, leads us to a very important truth, and that is that no day of ours is bad enough that we're beyond God's grace. In other words, we're, we're beyond the need of God's grace. Or the reach of God's grace, I should say. And no day of ours is good enough that we're beyond the need of His grace. That we're always in need of God to help us. And so... When we look at this book of Galatians, I think it will help us to see, because I think the theme of the book is that a right standing before God comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. A right standing before God comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. That our standing, the the fact that when we stand before God, God determines whether or not we're going to live with Him eternally, enjoy all the blessings of eternity. He's not going to say, well, let me look at all your works. Let me see how good they were. He's going to look at your sin and say, was that paid for or not? And so if you're struggling with that mindset that you need to do something in order to be accepted by God, then the remedy is found in this book. And the remedy is the Gospel of Jesus Christ that it is Jesus Christ and Him alone that affects your standing before God. And so we, as Christians, when we struggle with this, okay, will God accept me today because I had a bad day? Or God must really accept me because I had a good day? When we struggle with that in our mind, we need to look to the Gospel of grace. We're going to cover the first five verses, but I'm going to introduce the entire book and try to show you what Paul's trying to do in the book and... um, and I'll do that by, by exposing for you the meaning of the first five verses. Number one, uh, chapter one, excuse me, verse one. I'll read through verse five. Galatians chapter one, verse one. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To Him be the glory. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So the point of this book is that a right standing before God comes by faith in Jesus Christ apart from works. The first thing that I like to do when we start a new book is to talk about the author of the book and it's clear who the author is from verse 1 because he tells us his name. When we write letters, we often put our names at the end, but 
in those days they would put him at the beginning. Paul, an apostle. And he says, verse 2, all the brethren who are with me. Okay, so Paul tells us that, that he is the one. In chapter 5, verse 2, he's saying, see what large letters I write with my own hand. And, and he says in verse 2, chapter 1, all the brothers who are with me, all the believers that are, that are lending credibility to the gospel that I've given to you. And I'll tell you why that's important here in just a minute. Paul begins by talking about the validation of his apostleship in verse 1. Notice the, the parentheses there that are, are put in the New American Standard. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. What Paul's going to do in the first two chapters is try to show these readers, these churches in Galatia, that his apostleship was genuine. That is, that he was a true apostle of Jesus Christ. That this was not something that, that I just got from some other person, but I got it from Jesus Christ Himself. And he's going to prove that and I think the reason is because his opponents call his apostleship into question. The time and place of his writing also should be, we should also recognize the historical context in which it was written so that we understand some of the things that are going on when Paul brings them up. And the best clue that we have for the timing is found in chapter 2. So let me read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 for us this morning. And this will give us an indication of when this gospel or this uh, epistle, excuse me, this letter was written. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was, the, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There's a couple clues of the timing of when this, this was written. Um, and and uh, part of it comes from Paul saying that he went up to Jerusalem here in verse 1 a second time. That this was the second time that he had come to Jerusalem. The first time was when he first got saved. He went there for a few days. He will say this in, in the, at the beginning of chapter 1. But the second time is this what's known as the famine relief visit. 
And we, if you're here on Wednesday evenings, we're studying through the book of Acts. And we just got to this passage, Acts chapter 11, where Barnabas goes to Antioch and there's all these believers here, these brand new believers, Gentile believers. And Barnabas is there to validate whether or not this is legitimate salvation. When he goes there, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They, they are baptized in the Spirit. And Barnabas recognizes they need to be added to the church and trained, that they need to be learning everything that God has commanded, Jesus has commanded them. But Barnabas is not feel qualified himself, so he goes back to Tarsus where Saul was. And Saul, he brings Saul back, who is Paul here, he brings Paul back with him to Antioch and they stay there for a year. And this is the trip that, that they're talking about. One of the things that takes place during that time is one of the New Testament prophets by the name of Agabus recognizes, based on revelation that he got from God, that there was going to be a famine throughout the land. And so the, the believers there in Antioch recognize that this is going to be a strain on the church in Jerusalem. And so before Paul and Barnabas head back to Jerusalem, the believers there in Antioch gather up a collection apparently over a year, year's worth of time, and they give it to Paul and Barnabas and ask them to take it back. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 10 when he said, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, there are some who argue that this visit here in chapter 2 is actually referring to the Jerusalem Council. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, there's an argument over whether or not the Gentiles need to take on Jewish customs in order to be saved, in order to have a right standing before God. And so some would argue that, that um, this chapter 2 is referring to that. But based on the evidence, I would say that this is the family relief visit. And so this book was actually, actually written before the Jerusalem Council. And that means that this book was written around A.D. 49. He probably wrote it from Antioch while he was um, there teaching the believers and just prior to his trip to Jerusalem where he would give the money to the Jerusalem church and also uh, engage in this conversation about how we accept Gentiles into the church. Do they need to take on customs? The Jewish customs or not? Does Christ save them apart from these works? The reason for Paul's writing this book I think will become very clear as we go through the letter. What you will see from the very beginning, particularly next week, is that Paul is not very happy. In fact, look at chapter 1 and look at verse 8. Let's start with verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Okay, he goes on throughout the rest of the chapter and he's saying, listen, the gospel I gave to you was the true gospel because it came from Jesus Christ. And yet there are some opponents that are there in, apparently going around to these churches in Galatia and they're telling these people that Paul was not a true apostle and, and his gospel was distorted. It's not the true gospel, and so you shouldn't believe it. And uh, Paul actually calls them troublemakers. 
He calls them in chapter 5, verse 12, those who are troubling you. The, the word there is actually translated agitators. They're just trying to stir up trouble and, and we'll see their motive here in just a minute. But, but um, Thomas Schreiner points out three charges that these agitators laid against Paul. Number one, that he had an inferior gospel. These opponents were saying that Paul had an inferior gospel. Paul understood this, and so in chapters 1 and 2, he spills a lot of ink trying to validate his credentials. This is not something Paul ordinarily does, but he spends a lot of time validating his credentials as an apostle so that um, they do not undermine the gospel that he was preaching. Here's the way Paul sees it. If the Galatian believers don't see me as an apostle, then that's going to undermine the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the connection that the opponents were making was, because he's not a true apostle, he's receiving it from man, so he's mistaken. And therefore, this is not the gospel you should see. Paul doesn't mention anything about circumcision. And that is required. He's telling these Gentiles, these opponents are telling the Gentiles. So it's an inferior gospel because it was derived from man. Notice what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 1. See how he's combating this, this, uh, these opponents. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of men. It's not an inferior gospel. I am an apostle. God directly spoke to me through Jesus Christ. That's what an apostle is. It's someone who's seen the resurrected Lord and has been with Him and able to learn from Him. Number two, the second claim that they were making against Paul's Gospel is that it was a distorted Gospel. If Paul was really preaching the true Gospel, then he would require Gentile men to be circumcised because that's required in the Gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 again. Paul says, no, that has nothing to do with it. I'm amazed that you're quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel. I'm not the one who's distorting the gospel here. The gospel I gave you is the true gospel, and he's going to show why that is. But here he's just saying that I do have a, a, a true gospel and that your gospel is distorted. third claim that they make against him in this book is that Paul has a poisoned gospel. That is, he's doing it for wrong motives. The reason Paul was doing this, they say, was in order to, for his own sake, in order to gain the approval of the Gentiles. In other words... In order to make, in order to make them uh, trusting in Paul, in order for them to have more favor for Paul, Paul was able, willing to kind of soften the gospel a little bit, maybe water it down, make it a little bit more palatable. That way, they could accept it, and they could accept him. And it appears as if, based on the the tone of Paul's letter that the Galatian churches were buying into the opponent's arguments. You know, maybe it is true that Paul's watering this down. He never did mention anything about Jewish customs. 
I mean, we know that historically, that in order for a person to come to God, they have to come into the Jewish faith. They have to become a Jew. Turn to chapter 4, verse 9, because we'll see it a little bit more with regard to this Paul's gospel, supposed gospel. Paul actually turns the table here and says that they, they've got a problem. They, they've turned it into a gospel of works. Verse 9 of chapter 4, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Apparently, they were marking off certain days on the calendar as more spiritual than the other. And Paul was saying, listen, we've been freed from that. We're not under the law. That's what the, this book is going to be about. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Look down at verse 17. They eagerly seek you. That is, these opponents of mine. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. What was the opponent's goals? They wanted the people of Galatia to be impressed with them, not with Paul. Stop following Paul. Follow us. Turn to chapter 5, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. Paul says, You are running well. Who hindered you? from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear His judgment, whoever He is. So, for the most part, Paul's talking about them in the plural. That is, there's a whole group of these opponents. But here in verse 10... He talks about one specific person. So apparently this is probably the ringleader of these opponents. And he's saying that person who's disturbing you is, is, um, is going to bear the judgment. In chapter 1, verse 6, says the fact that he's preaching a different gospel means that he will be accursed. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, excuse me. And look down to chapter 6, verse 12. find out more about these opponents. Chapter 6, verse 12. And this really is at the heart of what they're trying to get the Galatian believers to do. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, okay, that's the opponents, they try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Apparently, these Jewish opponents were arguing for all these Jewish customs to come to be put on the Gentiles. And the reason for it was so that they would not get the persecution that would come from the other Jewish non-believing religious leaders. You see... There would be all this pressure. Now, all of these disciples of yours, all these people that you're working with, they're not even following Jewish customs. Now, these opponents would be persecuted for that. So, they want to make sure that their followers are doing this. And, and Paul says, but the real desire? So that they can boast in your flesh. So that 
as if they accomplished something in you. So do you see now why Paul felt it necessary to write to these Galatian churches? When he had left, probably only one year earlier, when he first set this up in his uh, first missionary, uh, when, uh, when the believers formed there, just before his first missionary journey, the churches had received the gospel of salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, apart from works, And now one year later, chapter 1, verse 6, they are so quickly deserting the Gospel. They've given up on it. They've turned from a Gospel that is free from the law to a Gospel that is bound by the law. So Paul has to make it clear, I need to go back to where we started, how you got the Gospel in the first place. And I've already mentioned who the recipients are, but look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. He clearly says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Turn back to chapter 1. At the end of verse 2, Paul talks about his recipients. He says, To the churches of Galatia. Now, Galatia, the, the region of Galatia contains many cities, including some northern cities. The Galatians actually uh, migrated from modern France in the 3rd century B.C. But around the time of Christ, the Romans came in and they began to influence the people that were living there, these Gauls who were, were there. And, and uh, eventually the place became a Roman province. And um, so, Paul could be speaking to the entire region of Galatia. If you're looking on the map, it would include both the northern cities of Galatia and the southern cities of Galatia. But he's probably only talking to the southern cities of Galatia. And that's because um, in Acts chapter 13, Luke makes no mentions of the northern cities. He only mentions Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So Paul's probably speaking directly to these southern Galatian cities and saying around AD 49, the gospel, the true gospel, is through Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. So if the Galatian churches are starting to adopt a what I would call a legalistic type of thinking, how ought they to fix this problem? How was Paul going to handle this? And I would say the answer to that is a proper understanding of the Gospel. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. The Galatians, because of these agitators, had adopted a legalistic type of thinking. Legalism is trying to obtain favor from God through works of the law. That is, God, if I do all these great things, then you have to do this for me. If I do all these works, then I've earned your favor. You have to treat me in a certain way. 
Well, what Paul is saying is, no, that's not the case. That's not why you get God's favor. It's not because of your works. And that's why he points in verses 3 to 5 to the gospel. Notice in verses 3 through 5, there's no mention of you or me in there. There's no mention of the Galatian people. The focus is on whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. It's because of what Christ did. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul would say to the Roman churches later, by the works of the law, okay, by legalism, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Turn over to chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 16. Chapter 2, start in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That word justified there is the word that I've been using for a right standing. We cannot have a right standing, according to this verse, because of the works of the law, because of our works. The only reason we can have a right standing is by faith in Jesus Christ. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by, all, abide by all things written in the book of the law to f- perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul makes it clear here in these verses, in chapter 2, verse 16, that a right standing before God, justification does not come by works. It comes by faith. In Jesus Christ. So when we start to think that way, when we start to think that we are earning God's favor, what is the remedy? What's the answer? The Galatians were thinking this way. We can often slip into this mindset as well. And the remedy is the cross of Jesus Christ. Turn to chapter 1, back to chapter 1, and we'll look at these verses here. Notice. In verse 4, that Christ gave Himself. Who gave Himself for our sins. No one, Jesus said, no one took my life from me. John chapter 10, verse 18, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one took it from me. As if I didn't want it to happen, I chose to lay my life down. And that's what it's talking about here in chapter 1, verse 4. He gave Himself. It wasn't as if someone snatched his life from him. He gave himself for us. He was willing to go to the cross. Why? Because of your sins. 
See that? In the second part of the verse, verse 4, who gave Himself for our sins. Why? Why did we need to have our sins uh, paid for through the cross? And that is so that, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, we were rescued from the evil that's in this world. This world is a corrupt world, full of sin. The Jewish opponents of, the Gal- of Paul here that were, were influencing the Galatians and trying to say that, 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 that really the reason that you have a right standing before God is because of you. And Paul starts out at the very beginning going back to the cross. No, it was because of Jesus Christ that your sins were paid for. And he says to those who have that payment, verse 3, applied to their account, grace and peace to them. See, grace is never because of what you have done. Grace is unmerited favor. That is unearned. And in fact, grace is unwanted favor. That is, we don't even want God's favor. We want to continue in our sin. But, but for some reason, God takes us out of that pathway that's headed for destruction. And He puts us on the pathway towards righteousness. And He does that through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if grace were earned, then it wouldn't be grace. Because grace is unearned favor. Undeserved favor. Unwanted favor. And because of Jesus' great work on the cross, verse 5, He deserves all glory be ascribed to Him. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. That is, I, actually, I think that's referring to God the Father there since He's the, the, uh, the subject there at the end of verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory. So, as a, God appointed that Jesus would go to the cross and as a result of Jesus going to the cross, all glory ought to be ascribed to God the Father. That we, are, we should acknowledge God and His Son for the glory that is due to Him. So we will learn as we go through this that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy for legalistic thinking. That is, that we can earn our own favor before God. Let me leave you with um, five points of application. Five points of application that we will um, become more clear as we study through this book. Number one, grace reminds us of the danger of legalism. When we understand grace rightly, it reminds us of the danger of legalism. That, that we have to work in order to, accept, to be accepted before God. Now, how is it that we ultimately will overcome Satan? We could argue that it was because of um, our righteousness. That because we overcame sin, I mean, in Revelation, believers are called overcomers. That is, they overcome sin somehow. So, so maybe it's attributed to us. But, but turn to Revelation chapter 12 with me. And I'll remind you of a passage that we studied not too long ago. Revelation chapter 12. And notice how these tribulation saints overcome Satan. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they, tribulation believers, overcame him, Satan, because of their own works, because of the piling up of their good things, because of, no, the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. The point there is that they overcame Satan. We will overcome Satan. We will ultimately have a right standing before God. Why? On the basis of... We're not going to be standing on our own works. We're going to be standing on the blood of Jesus Christ and God has to accept us when the blood is applied to us. He has to. So when Satan tempts me, It says, you are not worthy of heaven. You are rotten, low down, double-crossing, no good sinner. You often turn from God. Our answer should not be, well, actually you should see all the good things that I've done. And this is why God will accept me. So stop trying to, to get me to fear. You know what our answer should be when Satan says, you don't deserve God? Our answer should be the blood of Jesus Christ. The reason God accepts me is that's, that's the good news of the Gospel. It's not because of me. It's because of Jesus Christ. And His blood was enough. It was satisfactory in the eyes of God. And so when I'm tempted to despair and, and when it feels like I'm about to give in, as if I don't deserve God, I look to Jesus. See that He pardoned all my sin. You see, you and I are overcomers because of nothing that we have done. We are overcomers because of the blood, the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ in salvation. Don't ever get tired of learning about the cross. Don't ever get tired about learning about more about what Christ has done for you in salvation. Not only did He save you, but He is the grounds by which you will finally overcome Satan. I mentioned this before from Pilgrim's Progress, but I think it's appropriate here. Apollyon, who is Satan in the book, allegorized as Satan, speaks to Christian, who is the pilgrim, the the Christian there. Apollyon says, You almost fainted. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You almost turned back. You inwardly desired to bring glory to yourself. And here's Christian's reply to him. You know, all that is true. And much more that you have failed to mention. But the Prince, whom I now serve and honor, is merciful and ready to forgive. I cling to Christ. I don't cling to all the things that I've done. I don't stand before God on those days when I've just really messed it up. I don't stand and say, well, God, I hope all these good works that I've done in the past are good enough for You to accept me today. I don't do that because they're never good enough. I cling to Christ and I say, Christ's blood allows me to stand before You, God. He's already taken the punishment that I deserved not God by the works of righteousness which I have done, but it's according to His mercy that You saved me by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So number one, grace 
reminds us of the danger of legalism. It helps remove us from that mindset. Number two, grace points us to God. Grace points us to God. I mentioned before that that the Gospel that Paul speaks about, the Gospel of the cross, has nothing to do with us. In other words, it doesn't have anything to do with our works. It's all about Christ and His finished work. Paul doesn't end that section in chapter 1, verse 5 by saying, Praise be to those who accept this offer. Praise be to those who are, are, are finally saved. No, he says, Praise be to the God and Father who willed it to happen. See, grace, when we understand it rightly, points us to God. Number three, grace humbles us. Grace humbles us. When we recognize that all the blessings that we have are not a result of anything that we have done. When we fully recognize that, it is very humbling. Again, we don't deserve God. What do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath because of His sin, because of our sin. And yet, instead of our sin, instead of judgment because of our sin, God pours out on us His favor. Why? Why, God? Why do you do this? And you know what the answer is? We don't know. It's based on His will. He chose to do it. We know that how He does it through Jesus Christ. But why does He choose us over someone else? We don't know. And so it should humble us. It should cause us to stop comparing ourselves with others and think, you know, I'm a better person than them. And the reason I know that is because God's been blessing me with good health. I'm a better person than them because God's been blessing me with, with, with lots of wealth and possessions. We stop comparing ourselves. And even worse, we stop comparing ourselves to unbelievers and saying, you know, they are deserving of hell, but I'm thankful that I'm saved. I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. I pray three times a day. That's not the way we look at life. When we see them, we see ourselves. We see that we were deserving of that wrath. We were deserving to be on that path towards judgment. And we were until God rescued us. Through Jesus Christ. Grace humbles us. Number four. Grace teaches us to depend on Christ's righteousness, not on ourselves. Grace teaches us to depend on Christ's righteousness, not on ourselves. If we miss this point, we will miss the Gospel. If we are depending on ourselves for our standing before God, we're going to miss the boat. We will have abandoned the Gospel. That's what Paul's saying. I'm so surprised that you are deserting the Gospel that I told to you for another Gospel, which is really no Gospel at all. And if anyone teaches that, they are to be accursed. Chapter 1, verses 6-9. through So we learn that because we received grace, that, that all of that depends on Christ's righteousness, not on our works. And then number five, grace teaches us to avoid the other extreme, lawlessness. Paul's going to take some time to to talk about this in chapter 5 and 6. I didn't have much time to talk about this today. 
But what I don't want you to get from here is, okay, now we are free from the law. We, we are not under the law. We can't work for our salvation. Our standing before God is not based on us. So, we can just live however we want. There's no laws that, that govern how we ought to live. We don't have to follow any of these commands. We can be free. Paul's going to talk about that because that's the other extreme. Libertarianism. That, that the law doesn't matter. And that's the tendency to move from, from one extreme to the other. That is, I'm under the law. Okay. Paul says, no, you're not under the law. You're under grace. Okay, well, I'm not under the law. I don't have anything to obey. But grace teaches us to avoid that extreme. In fact, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 speak of it very clearly. The grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to them and teaching them to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Why does Paul say that? Because grace brings about your salvation and it brings about your growth in godliness. And if you're not growing in godliness, then you've gone to the other extreme. Grace doesn't do that. Grace makes sure that we understand it rightly, that we still are under the commands of Jesus Christ that He's given us. We're not under the Jewish law. That's the idea there. We have the law of Christ to abide by. So, we will uh, work through this book over the next couple months and I would encourage you to read the passage that's put there on the sermon schedule before we come. It will be a help to you as we're looking through each of these and I hope it will be an encouragement to you as it has already been encouragement to me just studying through uh, this first overview. And uh, So let me pray and we'll uh, ask God's help as we try to apply these things to our lives. Father, it's so easy to get off the right track intellectually and to think that we are where we are spiritually because of ourselves. We look at other people who reject the Gospel over and over again, who have little care for truth, who love their sin, and we think we would never be like that. And so, we, like the Galatians, are... are, um, given to the same wrong thinking. And we need Your grace to bring us back on the right path. To recognize that that it, it's nothing that we did that earned our salvation. It was all of Jesus Christ. It was His finished work. Thank You for the reminder this morning from Your Word. And I pray that You would continually burn that in our hearts so that we do not forget that. And I pray that the response would be not one of lawlessness, but it would be one of giving our lives as sacrifices fully to You, holy and acceptable to God. It's really the least we could do for You because of what You have done for us in giving Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that You would work in our hearts as we study through this book. We would... Uh, have our thinking corrected with regard to legalism. And we would understand our own sin more clearly, understand the cross more clearly, understand Your grace more clearly, and as a result, ascribe glory to You 
to Your name which is due to You and to our Savior Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.